Talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. To it's good except it sucks a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtle through the marvel cinematic universe this time we're taking a look at agents of shield first shown in september 2013 when if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends you could have watched trophy wife lucky seven or pat and cabbage instead i'm tim worthington and we'll be finding out what i made of agents of shield shortly Meanwhile, joining us to give his thoughts on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is quiz expert David Smith. David, where can people find you? People can find me mostly on Twitter. I'm at, at DVDSmith. I also have, in my spare time, I have a, a Twitch channel where I play video games online for people. Although that's kind of on hiatus because I'm moving house at the moment. So that will be back online sometime in the spring. But yeah, mostly on Twitter. You can get me there. Well, so before we go any further, David, what happened to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? So Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. revolves around the character of Agent Coulson, who was dramatically killed in the first Avengers film. When we find him in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he's been resurrected with a method we don't know of at the start, and he's been tasked to put together a new S.H.I.E.L.D. team, and in doing so, he um, tries to solve all these mysteries going on around the world with supernatural activity, and using this S.H.I.E.L.D. team, they encounter some quite, quite fun villains, and they uh, find some interesting discoveries and this over the course of the seasons they get into some incredible adventures okay well just going to ask before we discuss who that team actually are david how much did you know about shield before you saw agents of shield so i'm one of these people that i had never read a marvel comic book before the marvel cinematic universe started in fact to be honest i still haven't read a marvel comic book so most of my shield knowledge comes from like captain america the first avenger and um, the avengers film and i kind of get bits of comic book knowledge on the side from seeing people talk about it, seeing people talk about characters and their origins and things like that. But in terms of the characters in the television series, I know some of them are originals and some of them have been taken from the comics. I know pretty much nothing. So my entire knowledge of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the comics is based on if they've appeared in the MCU at some point and people talking about them or speculating about who they might be and things like that. So I'm very much in the dark when it comes to anything that's not in the show itself. Well, you see, I'm completely the opposite because my relationship with S.H.I.E.L.D. goes right the way back to I remember getting a book from the library about American comics that had a lot of different comic covers in it. In one of the montages of Marvel covers it had the first issue of Nick Fury Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. which I think was from I think 1967 but it was very like a kind of man from uncle avengers the prisoner type thing where he was walking through all these kind of psychedelic cubes and they said who is scorpio question mark and like sort of cold war lettering and i thought wow that looks like the best thing ever and so shield really apart from that run that nick fury had they never really had their own comic that much but they turned up a lot in things like the avengers and i really loved it when shield turned up because it, you know, there was that wonderful conflict between them, you know, essentially doing the government's work and the superheroes doing their own thing. 
And that's why I find it really interesting that most of the regular characters in this were created especially for the show, but have since become regular comic characters. They have, yeah. I think May definitely was created for this, Agent May. Fitz and Simmons were. Quake was actually pre-existing, Daisy. I think Mac had been in the comics for a while as well. But most of them were completely new. Most of them are brand new. And this is is what um, sort of concerned me when I heard that they were doing a TV spin-off. Because whenever you hear about a television spin-off of a film series or something like that, especially one that involves not just supporting characters, but sort of the people that don't even have names, you know, because you're supposed to care about these characters that you've literally never heard of because they've never existed in any comic before. And I think they've kind of fixed that a bit over the years. I mean, having said that, my favourite characters in the show are Fitz and Simmons in May, and they are the original ones. But you do, yeah, you're right. Mac was in, I think he was something like the early 2000s he was introduced, or maybe even earlier than that. Yo-Yo, who appears in seasons three, four and five, I think, she is originally she's in the in the comics. Mockingbird, who's in season two and three, she's in a she's one of the originals. She's from about the seventies. Yeah, there are a, a spate of originals, and then obviously one of the original characters turns out to be Daisy Johnson, who is like you say, Quake. They've done a relatively good job, I would say, of mixing them because obviously with the comic book characters, they've got all these decades of characterization to base it on, but it doesn't feel like they are any more fleshed out or less fleshed out than any of the characters that they just created for the pilot. So I think they've done a pretty good job with that. And obviously, as someone who didn't know any of the characters going in, they were all new to me. So it was a case of me discovering them for the first time, regardless of their origins. Well, you say that, but I'm going to go on to my first contentious point in this, which (laughs) is that the main impetus for the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV series, I think they were planning to do something with S.H.I.E.L.D. anyway. When you look at some of the earlier films and particularly the one shots, they were clearly going in that direction. But it's Joss Whedon, when he was working on Avengers Assemble, more or less said there's a series in there. And that's where it came from. But my problem with the first series, which I, I've got to admit, I stopped watching partway through. I think 90% of the audience did, I <laughs> yeah. think, yeah. Well, it was that I think Joss Whedon had, unlike with Avengers Assemble, where he really did succeed in making it a Marvel film made by Joss Whedon rather than a Joss Whedon film that happened to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And yeah. coming up in the later one of these, we'll be looking at what happened when somebody argued the toss about that and kind of got removed from a film. With this, I think what happened was it wasn't quite different enough and the only concession they really made was to take away that typical Joss Whedon humour so in series one you got almost no jokes at all and the style that doesn't fit and they became great later on but I think Fitz and Simmons barely have any character in series one they are almost just ciphers Agent May is brilliant from the off but that's because Joss Whedon has a long track record in creating sort of badass women and he's yeah, he very does. well versed at that but this that first series is dragged on and on. I remember in particular, the really early episode where they go to Peru in search of an artefact. Yes. This looks like it's going to be brilliant. Five minutes in, I was thinking, I'm still waiting for this to get brilliant. And it's it it's, it's a shame, really, because I think the first season, is, it's kind of like a lot of television shows, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but it, it kind of drives me a bit mad when people say, trust me, if you get through the first 16 episodes, it gets good, <laughs> I promise. And it's, you know, it's something like a 12-hour investment before you start enjoying it. And it does feel like, I don't know how much of this is true or what, whatever version, but I've heard different versions of this story with season one is that they obviously had to tread water a bit until the winter so 
soldier reveal and the big twist about S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA, which I think happens about two thirds of the way through season one. And I don't know whether, because it was very sort of monster of the week kind of before that, where there wasn't much going on and they were still kind of finding their feet, like a lot of shows do in their first season. And after sort of that episode, about 15 or 16 episodes in, when the big HYDRA reveal happens, before that, it is kind of plodding and it is kind of, there's not much there and it does kind of feel like they're sort of waiting for the big thing to happen, you know? I remember the pilot and a couple of the first episodes being a bit bland, I think it's fair to say. And it's a shame because they had, this was the first Marvel Cinematic Universe television series. This was launching the whole platform that would then go on to lead to Jessica Jones and Daredevil and all the others. But so many people turned in for that first season and it eventually plateaued to a sort of, as they say in the show, a small but active fan base. But if they'd hit the ground running from the start, I think it would have probably retained a bigger audience. Although then, who knows how different the, uh, the later seasons would have been. There are moments in that first season, though, that they do go back to later on like um, they spend a couple of episodes chasing Gravitonium down that's kind of the MacGuffin of the um, first season and that comes back in season 5 which is a hell of a callback but it does seem like they're sort of not really sure what they're doing at the beginning and there are a couple of episodes in that early run that I think are fantastic there's the episode where uh, Simmons gets infected by the um, is it the Chitari helmet I thought that episode was fantastic but there are only a couple of about 15 or 16 that yeah it takes them a while to get going and it's a shame really when you're trying to tell people you know trust me it becomes one of the best tv shows ever later on you just have to get through this terrible first season well there are a couple of bright moments like you say first of all we should just say nick fury and maria hill do show up in it along they with do. jasper sitwell shows up obviously later on when things get a bit nasty and it's revealed that hydra were within shield all the time and you know yeah. that does tie in with as you say with the winter soldiers There's also a tie-in with thor the dark world where sid turns up chasing Lorelei across earth trying to recapture her and has call on shield's help and that's a great episode i think they did start they uh, they advertised it as being sort of the tv show will show you what happens in the world in between all the mcu films and the tie-ins have been very very loose at best if we're honest i mean the winter soldier one is the big one obviously but i think for thor the dark world the only tie-in they had i mean sif does show up at one point but the only tie-in they had was them flying to Greenwich to clean up rubble yeah. from the battle. And then later on, there are odd mentions to the Sokovia Accords after Civil War and things like that. But otherwise, it's kind of left to do its own thing. And by the time you get to season five, by the time of Infinity War, there's one mention of Thanos and then nothing. And that's it. And I think for the better of the show, they kind of deviated from it because it allowed them to do their own thing and not feel tied to the events of the world. Well, there is one interesting one that I noticed re-watching it that I didn't spot at the time which is obviously when Daisy comes in she's quite a different character at first she's sort of an anti-establishment hacktivist yeah hacktivist is the word they use yeah well her contact I had not realised at the time is micro the Punisher's sidekick. Oh, and really? At that point, they hadn't even... They were probably considering what to do with The Punisher, but it was a long way away from the Netflix series. But they were obviously bringing that into the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, the idea that The Punisher was out there. Yeah, well, they have done that in a lot of the MCU, because there's obviously there's a moment in... Um, what's the film where Sitwell mentions Stephen Strange off the top of... Uh, he's list- listing a whole bunch of enhanced people. I think, it, I think it's Winter Soldier. That is Winter Soldier. And yeah, and... It, there's still debate over some of the other people he mentioned which is interesting yeah and it's just you are thinking are they just throwing out random names or do they have this grand plan where 
they're name dropping someone and do- knowing that they're going to bring them back at a later point. Well, like I say, I did go back to it eventually, and series two I thought wasn't quite there. It was a vast improvement, and it also really showed the potential of. See, I think the TV series have been really useful in terms of bringing in characters that I don't think would really work in a film. Yeah. There isn't really enough scope for bringing them in properly, but in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., from the off in series two, you've got the absorbing man, Crusher Creel, who yeah. basically his power is he absorbs the properties of things, who is a long-time antagonist of the Hulk more than anyone else, but I don't think, you know, he's a big enough villain for a film, but he works perfectly in something like this, and then you start to get a lot of people in it, like Deathlock, who is kind of an anti-hero in the comics, he's sort of on S.H.I.E.L.D.'s side in this, later on we've got a really big one, we'll come back to it, but I think these shows are the perfect avenue for that. I mean, again, characters like Mockingbird, would she really have worked in the film? I'm not sure, but she was always one of my favourite comic characters, not just because I fancied her, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good point, because particularly someone like Mockingbird, I think if you tried to make a film about Mockingbird, there's not much you could do to make her sort of... She'd have to be somehow different from, like, Black Widow and these other sort of characters around the same time. The reason that the MCU started was because Marvel was thinking, well, we've got all of the rights for their A-list, what you'd call A-list superheroes, people like um, Spider-Man and the X-Men and things like that. They didn't have the rights for them, so they're thinking, okay, we'll drop down to the B-list, and who have we got? We've got Iron Man, we've got Captain America, we've got Thor, and when you get down to the sort of the C and D list, you do get people like Deathlock and uh, Mockingbird, and these people that, you have to explain who they are in relation to other people. Like, you have to say, Deathlock is an enemy of the Hulk or something like that. They they don't stand on their own, really. And, like I say, when I started this, I didn't know, I knew they were bringing in comic book characters, but I had no idea of the sort of level that we were talking about. So when you mention characters like, you know, obviously we'll talk about them later, but people like Hive and Graviton and people like that. I mean, obviously Ghost Rider, I think, is the most high-profile person that they've had that's an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. exclusive. But yeah, when you get these ones that you're sort of... I kept having to go back online and look at discussion boards after every episode and go, oh, so that character actually is an original character or (laughs) that character is from a comic book from 20 years ago. Because I genuinely had no idea. They were just, for me, it was just another character they were bringing in. So it's been good for me to sort of learn about sort of integrate my knowledge of the MCU and Marvel history as it were as you go. The basic storyline of series two, it's kind of split into two which is that Simmons is in deep cover with him what's left in Hydra possibly the least suitable one for the send in but at the same time they're discovering the existence of the Inhumans who are without giving too much away because we're coming back to the Inhumans in a later episode they're kind of a subset of humans that were putting it very simply radically transformed by exposure to an artifact left by the Kree who are an alien race which weirdly this was supposed to tie in with Guardians of the Galaxy and the only link I can see is that there are some Kree in Guardians of the Galaxy who are nothing like they're implicated to be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. they're kind of sinister but comical but it's sort of the two storylines run sort of distinct to each other and they never quite manage to mesh in a satisfactory way yeah because they're trying to do two sort of things in season two they're trying to keep the hydra storyline going and obviously you've got the big reveal in season one and you know this is the first major spoiler of the fact that ward who's a member of the team who's been there since
at the very beginning is actually Hydra. And so they've got this kind of cat and mouse game going on with him. But at the same time, you've also got Skye, as she was known then, trying to find out the true identity of her parents. This is the season in which Kyle MacLachlan comes in as a guest star, who's fantastic. And he's Mr. Hyde, I think. Is that his name in the comics? It is, yes. But he looks very He does, yeah. Mr. I've seen the pictures. And then, yeah, you've also got this onset of... I don't think they get named right at the beginning when you get when Sky's transformation happens because it's not just Daisy it's the, um, it's the other women as well uh, Raina she's transformed at the same time and that's the first time you see <laughs> and then you see the guy with the biggest forehead in the world the guy with no eyes whatever his name was and then the whole second half of the season is them sort of going to this inhuman sanctuary it's almost like the inhumans are kind of being this substitute because Marvel don't have the rights to use the mutants or at least they didn't at that time from X-Men and so the inhumans are kind of filling in that role of the powered individuals trying to hide themselves from day to day life they don't really have the sort of well oiled machine yet in season 2 in terms of the storylines because I think season 3 and particularly season 4 and we'll come on to season 4 in a minute because I could talk about season 4 forever but season 2 is think they're still sort of they're getting there you're learning a bit more about the characters but at the same time you're still sort of i remember enjoying season two a fair bit but i don't remember sort of watching it eagerly with anticipation like i was for seasons three four and five and so on but yeah it was definitely an improvement over season one although to be honest pretty much anything would have been they're among us heroes monsters there are no more shadows for you to hide in versus spy anymore. The whole world's in on the action. Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the new TV series, premieres Tuesday, September 24th on ABC. They also dialed down the tie-in a bit in the sense that it does have a lead into Age of Ultron involving Maria Hill and it does have an episode set after it where it's more or less, phew, that Ultron bit <laughs> left a bit of a mess, eh? I've never quite worked out if the films actually were on general release between episodes. Never quite been sure of that. But the really good thing you get here is there is a flashback with Peggy Carter and the Howling Commandos confiscating some of the Kree items from yes, Hydra. Yes, it's after S.H.I.E.L.D. has been founded, I believe, which, as far as Agent Carter's timeline, it was still the SSR at that point, I believe. So S.H.I.E.L.D., I think, is founded sometime after the time of Agent Carter, which I believe would be early 50s. And, yeah, this is the first proper... I guess you could call that the first proper tie-in, because you have an actor from the films appearing in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and tying in with... Because Agent Carter hadn't started at this point, had it? It started the following season, I believe. That was good to to see the sort of integration between Captain America, the first Avenger, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I think that was probably... Obviously, you've got Nick Fury coming back at the end of Season 1, I believe, was he back? Because uh, that was after Winter Soldier, yeah. And we haven't really had anyone on that sort of level since. There was a rumour going round that Chris Evans wanted to appear in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in the final season. I remember him saying something about that during the Endgame promo, but that would have been when they were filming it, so I don't think that's likely to happen. But he would be the biggest character to be in it by far but I think at the mo- I think they wanted it to happen when they got Nick Fury and they thought we're going to get Iron Man in it, in it at some point we're going to get Captain America and then it never really happened I think it would have blown the entire st- series budget in about five minutes but series three is the one where I felt they really hit their stride because it's really just one sim- I mean the showrunners go on about they've got this thing about each season is a series of pods which is three distinct stories but really to me this is one 
one simple story told very well and very threateningly across a whole season, which is basically Simmons has ended up on another planet. At the start, you don't know that it's actually another planet. You don't know what it is. When she returns, she inadvertently sets the wheels in motion for Hive, which is kind of, again, simplifying it a lot, but it's kind of Hydra in sludge form. <laughs> yes. That just keeps expanding and enveloping for bringing that to Earth. And it ends up back out in space again. But the whole season is that story, and they do it brilliantly. And meanwhile, they bring in all kinds of other interesting characters and plot details around it. But they also, I have a feeling we might differ on this, bring in Lash, who's an inhuman, who sounds like, if anyone used to listen to the Collins and Herring podcast, Andrew Collins' description of Lion Man, <laughs> who is quite a boring antagonist. Really. He is, yeah. He just shows up and just slaps people about a bit and disappears. Yeah, and I remember thinking, because that's happening at the same time that Gem is stranded on the planet, and that's the sort of arc of the season. But at the same time, they have to have something on Earth for the rest of the agents to be doing while they're searching for Simmons. And so Lash does kind of fill in. And there's a bit of a connection there with the characters in terms of Lash turns out to be someone quite close to, is it Agent May? But he is kind of, he shows up. There's a big shadow of him against a wall. You don't ever see him because he would have been too expensive to animate. And then he disappears again and then he attacks somewhere else. And they just kind of cat and mouse with him for a few episodes. And that did feel a bit like filler, especially when you consider, when you look it up and realize that Lash wasn't an original comic book character he was created basically for the show but season three does contain one of if you talk to agents of shield fans they talk about the episode called 4722 hours which is just what simmons does it's an entire episode of just Gemma simmons on this planet trying to survive and it's unlike any other episode of agents of shield because it is just this one character i think that is when i started being completely and utterly gripped by this show and particularly because Fitz and Simmons are my favourite characters in the show by far, and probably two of my favourite characters in anything. You know, I'm a I'm a nerdy British scientist myself, and so I sympathise and I empathise with the nerdy British scientists, and particularly because this dynamic of their sort of college friends that have gone and worked together, and there's this will they won't they between them during the first couple of seasons. Eventually, you get to the end of season two. Fitz asks Simmons out on a date. She says yes, and then she's immediately swallowed by this monolith <laughs> and cast away to a planet. And it's as if the writers were going, how can we screw with these guys as much as possible to make sure they do not get a happy ending? And so you spend the entire time wanting them to be together and things keep happening. And I loved the way that they managed to make this arc work both on the planet and on Earth because Hive starts on this planet, which I believe is called Maveth. I think it's, it comes from the Hebrew word for death. And there's this whole backstory to Hydra about how it's been going for hundreds of years and how Hydra was founded in order to serve Hive and Hive is the original inhuman and they managed to tie it into so many different things and then of course they also bring in Ward who is kind of the main antagonist he's the recurring antagonist across the first three seasons they've had people come and go you know like the clairvoyant and people like that but he's the one that's always been there and then they have Hive inhabit Ward's body and he brings him to Earth and then obviously they go to space at the end and it's also a way for them to be able to show Hive without having to fully animate him which I think would have been too expensive again for the TV show because they are kind 
kind of bound by television budgets. And so I was really, really impressed with season three and everything that they did to sort of build the characters, especially build Fitz and Simmons characters and their relationship with each other over the course of that season. I know I said earlier on they have no character when they started. They really do develop and become really likable. Although my favourite character has always been Agent May. Yeah. I love the way that occasionally they let her hard as nails facade slip. And, you know, she wants reassurance about how well she's dressed sometimes or whatever. Or yeah. Sometimes she uses men for sexual purposes, sometimes for romantic purposes. But she's always in control. But you get occasional glimpses of the human behind it all, particularly in relationship with her mother, who is, I think, is the one person in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. who has the upper hand with Asia. <laughs> yeah. The thing about the budget is a really important point, because it only struck me recently. As far as I can tell, at no point during all three series of Jessica Jones, you actually see her flying. Yeah. And yet flight is stated. It is one of the abilities in the comics. It's stated in the programme, it's referenced, but obviously if you'd shown up in one of the films, they probably wouldn't have been able to do it, but on TV, there's not really the time or money. And the thing about Jessica Jones is, that's Netflix money. So, you know, these streaming services have a lot more money to pour into television shows compared to the broadcast networks. And of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is broadcast on ABC. So they have even less money to deal with when it comes to that. The fact that they were able to achieve what they did, I think is quite impressive. Like, make this alien planet in season three believable and make Hive a threat without actually having to show him on screen. And I think that's why Lash is shown in silhouette so much. Especially because when you look at season one, some of the CGI is quite ropey, you know, with things like the Quinjets and when they're taking off and things like that. Sometimes it's quite obvious. It looks a bit like a PlayStation 2 game. It's, it gets better over the course of the seasons, I think, as CGI improves. But I'm always impressed whenever they can uh, tell a convincing sort of superhero story with a shoestring budget compared to the films. And on top of that, you've got some great new characters. As we mentioned, you've got Yo-Yo, who basically her ability is, as we'll mention in a minute, she's slingshot in the comics, but she can move really quickly to another position and immediately bounce back to original position without anyone noticing. There's Hellfire, who's, I think he's Australian, he's an inhuman, who's a bit of a git, really. Yeah. You're never 100% sure whose side he's on, so it's probably best to say he's on his own side. Holden Radcliffe, played by John Hanna, who, I can't quite say camps it up because it's not a camp performance, but he really does a stagey, a cartoony in the right way, turned as this quite dangerous bioscientist who doesn't realise he's dangerous. He does. It's his experiments are that off the wall. There's a couple of references as well in this to other MCU properties, which they kind of dropped, tying in with the films by this point. Although there is a reference of Bob Strucker from Age of Ultron. Yes. In that his son is recruited by Ward into kind of a reconstituted Hydra. There's also some of Howard Stark's research from Agent Carter is picked up on, which didn't really get continued past the end of Agent Carter. Also, there's a blink and you miss it reference to somebody beating up gangs in Hell's Kitchen, which obviously is That's Daredevil. Netflix Daredevil started yeah and also i think damage controller mentioned who obviously featuring spider-man homecoming but i think they got the entire mix right with series three it's just everything about it felt right apart from lash also could we have a shout out for ming na wen as well because she is beating people she that woman is 56 years old and she looks like nothing like it she is beating people up half her age and absolutely kicking ass and if people don't know ming na wen she was the voice of mulan in the original disney films and this is probably her most high profile role since and I think she's fantastic and apparently she's a proper geek herself and was absolutely thrilled to be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. oh yeah so I, I think a few of them it are it wasn't just a career move she really really was you know just honoured to be asked you mentioned Holden Radcliffe as well that was something that I was quite pleased to see 
is that between Fitz and Holden Radcliffe, some of the few Scottish actors in Hollywood who get to use their own accent as well. Because normally when you get Scottish actors, like uh, it's like David Tennant and they're doing an English accent or they're doing an American accent. This is one of the few where they get to just be Scottish within the show. And then um, in season four, you get Fitz's father shows up and, you know, he's got one of the strongest Glaswegian accents I've ever heard. OK, well, we're going to take a bit of a mid-season break there and hopefully we won't run into Lash on the way. <laughs> it might be too boring to continue but David I'll see you in part two of our chat about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Thanks very much. If you've enjoyed this don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks as well as details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.